certain historical issues should be off-limits to debate? If so, you're listening to the wrong radio show. Please, go listen to something else. If, on the other hand, you support fearless free speech, even about such fraught topics as, <gasps> gasp, the Holocaust, you're listening to the right radio show. And in fact, you might even want to subscribe by going to kevinbarrett.substack.com. Welcome back. This is Truth Jihad Radio. Indulging in all-out free speech on the premier free speech live radio network of revolution.radio. Kevin Barrett, my website is truthjihad.com. It's out of action at the moment, but should be back up within a week or so. In the meantime, you can find me at Kevin Barrett, that's K-E-V-I-N-B-A-R-R-E-T-T, at substack.com. And uh, you can also find me at unzunz.com and veteranstoday.com and heresycentral.is and uh, broadcast on No Lies Radio, and on and on and on. So, anyway, uh, that out of the way, let's get back to the unmitigated free speech. And, of course, the ultimate third rail topic is not even so much 9-11, although I guess if you point out Israel's role in 9-11, you're starting to get towards that third rail. But the real third rail topic is the Holocaust you don't bow down and worship the big H Holocaust with its sacred six million and its holy trinity of the gas chambers, the sacred six million, and the deliberate extermination uh, plan, uh, the preordained plan. If you don't believe in all three of those, you are termed a Holocaust denier. Unfortunately, if you actually study the history and read up on the arguments of both sides, what you find is that those revising the standard stories of the six million in the gas chambers and the pre-ordained extermination order are at least partly right. Uh, at least they seem to be based on a um, no a, a modest perusal. You know, I have I'm not a, a specialist, so I don't know for sure what the truth is about this issue. But it sure isn't what the mainstream is telling us, and it sure isn't what the judicial system in the many countries where they lock people up for saying the wrong thing about this issue uh, would like us to believe. So I really respect people who are pushing the free speech envelope by insisting that history should be investigated freely and without fear. And one of those people is Bruce Lichty. He's a Mennonite attorney, and he found himself in hot water at an academic conference a couple of years ago. It was in 2019. He was at a Holocaust conference at Bethel College in Kansas. He paid, he registered, he participated in the conference, and he didn't do anything that was against the rules of the conference, and still they basically threw him out for his opinions. So naturally, uh, he didn't appreciate that, and even less did he appreciate being tossed in, into jail. <laughs> so there's a, a court case going on even today. It's now just jumped up to the federal level, and here to talk about it is Bruce Lighty himself. So hey, welcome, Bruce. How are you? Hi, Kevin. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you back. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad that you didn't just like roll over and take it from these crazy people who <laughs> mistreated you at this conference where you were participating, discussing the topic of the conference, and they just didn't like the perspective that you were bringing there. And uh, they ended up getting you not only ejected, but tossed into jail. I mean, this is completely outrageous. Right. 
Yeah, well, I um, it's tough. It's a tough road to hoe in the court system, of course, as some of your uh, listeners may already know, and that's what I'm finding as well. And that's not new to me because I've been a lawyer now for oh, probably about 35 years now, and uh, have experienced the gamut. You know, there's still some cases that one can win, but there's a lot of corruption and uh, unseen loyalties uh, that one runs into. But at any rate, I lost at the federal district court level on my claim of breach of contract and false arrest, which I should not have. This was a Trump appointee uh, who I, you know, I guess had some hopes on just because he was a relatively new guy on the bench and supposedly he's going to root out the deep state, everything, all that goes with it. But in this part of the deep state, I guess it's still untouchable. Um, but, you know, his his logic leaves a lot to be desired, left a lot to be desired, and that's why I appealed it. So it's now before the Tenth Circuit in Denver. And uh, is there hope? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm correct on the law. We'll see if the judges, the judges who gave us Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court earlier are going to uh, come around to do the right thing or if they will support their... Uh, colleague in the, at the federal court in Wichita. But anyway, just a, a couple of other things that you had said there that um, that I will offer some uh, supplement on. Um, the conference was in 2018. I waited a year after I had not been prosecuted for criminal trespass, which is what I was arrested for, thrown in the uh, holding cell for 18 hours. Uh, they, they did not prosecute me for that. And then I lingered and couldn't quite make up my mind if I wanted to take this on. But before the year was out, I did file a lawsuit against not only the uh, college, but also the city of North Newton, the police for instigating a false arrest or well-recognized cause of action in Kansas for which I qualified. Um, and, you know, the, cow, the uh, city was dismissed almost immediately. And so um, they were not part of trial proceedings of the proceedings that never reached trial in the lower court, but they are part of this appeal because I believe that the court improperly dismissed them. And then the college came along after a lot of discovery was taken after I found out a lot of information that I didn't know before, which was useful in itself. But they came along and said, well, he doesn't even get to go to trial on this. His conduct was so egregious that you can find that he, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't deserve to present his case to a jury, and the judge found a, a, a way. To so, so that's a that's a summary judgment. It's a summary judgment. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get, at least be able to go to trial and put some of this evidence in front of a jury, but you know, it's kind, it's kind of a parallel there with what happened to Jim Fetzer, because you know, Jim and Lenny Posner, who was suing him for defamation in the Sandy Hook case, you know, they obviously did not agree on the facts. And supposedly, summary judgment is when the facts are totally clear. Nobody really disagrees about them. And yet, Jim, who was, uh, he had a fool for a client because he was representing himself, uh, ended up walking into that trap. I'm in the same situation. I have a fool for a client. But, but at least you have a law degree. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there are people who pointed that out to me. And I think that's a little bit overdone. Although, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's it's treacherous territory to represent yourself and even for a lawyer it is but so you have to keep your guard up but but yeah that's uh, there probably are some parallels i'm not familiar with jim's case but the federal courts make it uh well 
they they can they can try to uh, find that there are no issues of material fact even when there are they they do regularly find that and they did in my case you know the college president lied about what he told of the police but yet the judge said well it didn't really make any difference because he had already been ordered off the campus the day before well i was never ordered off the campus the day before I was told I was, quote, out of the conference, which is a different concept. And the college president later admitted that, hey, I didn't, he didn't care where I went on the campus. I, you know, they knew I wasn't a threat to anything because I had long visited that campus, done research in the archives, gone to the snack shop, the bookstore, et cetera, et cetera. So all he wanted me out, out of was the conference where they thought I was going to sully their, their narrative, I guess. And the other irony is this was a, a conference about the Holocaust. So they were already touching the third rail in some ways, but they had one purpose for that conference, and that was to emphasize how guilty we as Mennonites should feel for the participation of some of our European brethren back in the day, back in the era of World War II in persecuting the Jews or not challenging the Nazi regime, or he actually actively cooperating with the Nazi regime. There were some of those Mennonites. In fact, two of the or campus, two of the organizers of the conference have ancestors who fall into that category, which is a real irony. They were my two main adversaries. So, and, and I wasn't trying to cover up any of that. I was interested in dialoguing about all of it. My only goal, and I wasn't even anticipating to raise a brouhaha about issues at the conference itself. My main goal is with so many people assembled, I thought, hey, this is an ideal time for them to hear from two Jewish revisionists, namely Henry Herskovitz and Daniel McGowan, who I brought to do a little side event um, called Two Jewish Revisionists Consider the Holocaust. And so I handed out some flyers when I first got there. Oh, boy, they didn't like that, even though there was no prohibition on distribution of flyers. And, you know, that that was that resulted in a police call, but that was all worked out when I meekly agreed that I would no longer submit or hand out flyers. And then when I stood up, wait, wait, no, Bruce, I, I don't I don't think flyers would have been uh, against the rules if, for instance, you had been advertising an event. Uh, Holocaust survivor uh, speaks out and, and plays ukulele, uh, plays plays dirges for the Holocaust victims on her ukulele. We're having this little fundraising event for uh, for B'nai B'rith uh, tomorrow night. And here's our flyer. Guess what? It would have, it would have been perfectly good. fine to hand out flyers. Very good point. An exception would have been made, I think. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, anything that went along with their narrative would be fine. But as soon as you are questioning them, suddenly flyers are illegal. You know, they're, just making, they're pulling it up. Out, they're pulling it out of their orifice. Obviously, all of this stuff you could see them making up these things as they went along. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, supposedly they had some sort of a campus rule against prohibition on leafleting, but registrants were never told that. And oftentimes in conferences. You have the ability to share materials with your fellow registrants. In fact, I would argue that that's one of the purpose of an academic conference, that you should be allowed to do that. So, you know, to me, there should be exceptions built in right there. But at any rate, I I submitted to that. They didn't have any further grounds to, uh, you know, uh, say that I was noncompliant on that basis, even though the judge tried to use that. But what they really had a problem with was my standing up during a comment period at the end of that afternoon and simply uh, offering and telling um, registrants that they had the opportunity to hear 
two Jewish revisionists speak at a nearby event. Oh, I was drowned out. I was not, my microphone was cut and I wasn't even permitted to, to, um, to finish my comments. And then they called the police again, but I wasn't even oh. arrested. There. <laughs> I, wasn't, I was not even arrested there. So I, it wasn't that I, and, and I, I, I made a point of not actually challenging any narrative that was presented there. This was merely a supplement, which I thought in the spirit of academic inquiry and an academic conference, there might be a few people who would actually be interested. Well, I guess I was fairly naive, wasn't I? <laughs> yeah, well, this tells you like about you know what's left of free speech and academic conferences in the U.S. is, is just a joke. Um, you know, if you want to have a real academic conference on the Holocaust, I guess you have to get Ahmadinejad to invite you over to Tehran. And I didn't make well, any of those conferences, but I've made a lot of other conferences in Iran. And as E. Michael Jones says, um, Tehran is the capital of the free world because there are conferences where it, it, there's total free speech in those conferences. If you want to come and challenge whatever the, you think the dominant viewpoint is there, um, you're welcome. And, and here, here in the U.S., it's the opposite. You know, we've become a closed society. It's a travesty. Yeah, it is. A, it's a travesty. And uh, yeah, um, I mean, you know, I, I always point out to people that it's not my case is not so much a case of free speech. Granted, they can uh, decide what free speech they're going to permit there. It's not a case where I have First Amendment rights per se, because it's not this is not a public university. But on the other hand, they did have to answer the fact that I was there as a paid registrant. And if something they did criminalized my behavior, then then I believe they're answerable for it. And, and yet they have not, but they've not had to be so far. So, yeah, that's uh that's completely wild. So, so I understand that after the conference uh, you were uh, ho hoping to have uh, you know somebody, uh, join us on the show, perhaps, uh, who had a different view from you. But as always, um, it seems that the people who <laughs> absolutely hate what folks like us and my other radio guests have to say on this show never want to come on and actually debate it. Um, and, and so to tell me about that. Have you been trying to get some debate going around this? And <laughs> where does that go? Well, there's a local group in Central California that I've actually spoken at before in my capacity as a lawyer. It's been some years. As an immigration lawyer, I was completely acceptable to speak to them. But on this topic, um, you know, not so much. But I, I had think I had, somehow I had sent a news release to this fellow, and uh, he had actually distributed it. I mean, it was just one person I had sent it to. He's one of the persons associated with it, and he had sent it to the whole group with some supportive words, you know, basically saying, hey, we should be concerned about this. This is our church college that did this. And, you know, it fits right in with some of the things we've been talking about. Oh, boy, did he hear it then. Uh, <laughs> so he, he was no longer interested in coming on to even talk about, you know, the kind of responses he got by the time I contacted him. Um, his commitment to free speech ran very, very, very um, short, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't found anybody to uh, argue against Holocaust revisionism since I think I did a show back in maybe 2009, 2010 or something like that. And there were a couple of sort of Internet debunkers of the Holocaust deniers who were willing to engage. And so I did have a show where uh, some guy was living over in Spain and then this other uh, Jewish guy from uh, Pennsylvania did come on 
and uh, discussed it and, and had a little debate with Thomas Dalton, who published the uh, the book uh, Debating the Holocaust. And right. since then, I can't seem to get anything like that going. Uh, the, the people who defend the official version are no, no longer interested in engaging. Um, it's it's very strange because, well, you know, when, when with, you know, if they really believe that their their opponents are so out to lunch, uh, why can't they succinctly explain why that is? Well, this is a fiction that has to be maintained not only here, but in certain other areas, too, where you don't really want your narrative to be exposed to questioning. And you pretend that it is so solid and so accepted and so universally acknowledged that, you know, well, we, we don't have to talk about that. In fact, it's beneath our dignity to do that. And, you know, it would, uh, it's just encourages hate and anti-Semitism and that type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, that's what we're up against at this point in terms of that kind of dialogue. I did, I was, I also participated in another event where there's a, there's a prominent young historian out of Princeton. I think he may be a fellow at Harvard or something too by now, Benjamin Gosen, who's written about Mennonites in the Holocaust. And I've challenged some of his stuff before. Well, I was on a, a conference call or a, on a Zoom meeting, I guess, with him. And I simply raised the question about some of the, so some of the, the the Mennonite people were among Stalin's victims, of course, in in uh, the 1930s, right before World War II, and and saw Hitler as a bit of a savior and the German soldiers there. And they also had I had just read an article by another scholar saying that they were in, some of their interrogators, some of the guys who put to consigned them to their death or the gulags were. Uh, were Jewish in nature, and he actually had come out right and said that. Well, when I mentioned that to this Gosen as kind of a, you know, can you can you give a little bit more nuance to what you're saying about where some of the people were coming from when they were supportive of national socialism? I was I was cut off. I was told that this is not an appropriate question to even raise, and I was eventually. Uh, removed from the call when I when actually what I did then was I said, yeah, Gosen was one of the same persons behind the people who had me arrested at Bethel College. I, I typed that in the chat session because I had already been my microphone had already been cut off. And once I did that, then I was removed, dropped from the call entirely. So, oh man, that's that, just that, crazy. That, that, that's the kind of treatment I get from the, my Mennonite church, which well, that, that's ironic know. though, because because you know, Bruce, when when you're not allowed to explore the reasons that people in parts of Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, parts of you know Germany, not only Germany itself, but including what's now the Ukraine, actually preferred the Nazis to the Bolsheviks, and part of the reason was that the Bolsheviks were massively disproportionately Jewish, just like our mainstream media is today, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and so they got a bad impression of Jewish people from that and kind of resonated with the Nazis' anti-Jewish ideology. And all, so, so there were all these sympathizers, these, these German, you know, the people who sympathized with Germany uh, in its fight with Bolshevik Russia. And guess what? Those are our allies in Ukraine right now. You know, the CIA overthrew the democratically elected government of Ukraine in 2012 and installed 
a government whose prime force is this kind of, you know, covert behind the scenes Nazi deep state consisting of Operation Paperclip Nazis that the U.S. harvested from Ukraine after World War II and kept as a fifth column to use against the Soviet Union, kept that whole thing alive, kept funding those people and organizing those people all of those years, then stuck them in there in power after 2012. And now it's essentially those Ukrainian Nazis that we are using to fight against Russia. And the reason that these Ukrainian Nazis will f- die, they'll they'll fight to the last Ukrainian against Russia, is because they're basically Nazis, and Nazis hate Russians and hate Slavs as well as they hate Jews, and there are Nazis, and and so it's you know, yeah. it, it won't even let you talk about why these kind of people would have the beliefs that they have. It's crazy. Right. You've described that situation better than I've heard anybody else describe it. I, I, I haven't really completely read up on that, but that that makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah, I've I've never called for taking sides here either. I've simply called for when you do history, do it with nuance, do it with recognition at least that people don't act. Maybe some people do act out of hate, hate or anti-Semitism, but some people believe they have good reasons when they act at the time. You know, they may believe that they're fighting degeneracy in a culture, for instance. They may believe that they're fighting an international banking cartel. You know, let's let's give it some nuance. Um, so. Well, so yeah, today the biggest haters are the uh, Ukro-Nazis. And a lot of the Ukrainian population now, the, Ukraine, the 55, 60% of the Ukrainians who speak Ukrainian, there's a real extreme virulent hatred of Russia that's quite common in that population now. Uh, and that kind of hatred is, of course, encouraged and cheered, applauded uh, here in the Western media. And and that hate speech is uh, is held up as laudable. And we're all supposed to basically engage in that two minutes of hate for Russia, along with the Ukrainian haters. Uh, so I guess hate speech is really kind of in the eye of the beholder, whether it's good hate speech or bad hate speech. Very much so. And uh, same with anti-Semitism. It's mostly in the eyes of the beholder. So. Right. Yeah. So so there's been other fallout from your arrest, too. And you mentioned that you've been blacklisted under America's new covert social credit system. <laughs> what, what's yeah, that about? Yeah, I, I chuckled, but it's not really laughing matter. So, yeah, this was a total surprise to me. I, I mean, it takes a little bit of background here, but I'm, I'm also the chairperson, a co-chairperson of a small Mennonite church in Southern California where I live. And we had come into an inheritance with considerable um, stocks, stock holdings. So, you know, we were trying to set up a brokerage account with the same brokerage where this fellow had had his holdings. And uh, so um, in, in, in trying to open that, I mean, I had cleared all the hurdles I thought and uh, was going to be the representative for the church in that account. And then all of a sudden, actually it happened when I was in Kansas, all of a sudden I get a call from the broker uh, you know, there's a problem, Bruce. You know, the uh, the back office is saying that you cannot be the representative here because, well, what, uh, you know, he stumbled around, didn't really want to come. Wait, 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 what back office? Who's who's back office? Oh yeah, the okay, back office of the brokerage. This is UBS, Union Bank of Switzerland, but they have a brokerage arm. Oh my and goodness! This, <laughs> this, this is this is this is where uh, the 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 fellow who left us these stocks had his stocks. And so we were simply going to keep them there and open an account in the name of the church, which we had succeeded in doing. But then all of a sudden I get this call saying, 
uh, you know, you, you can't, you know, we, we, we see that you do, did you have an arrest on your record? And, you know, was it they're political? I mean, what, what's that all about? I mean, he knew details of the arrest um, that I hadn't disclosed. I certainly hadn't ever disclosed to him. I mean, this, I, you know, he's not a personal friend of mine, but uh, somehow this had crept into my record and he, they were bound to determine I was not going to be the representative for that church and that account. And he said, not only is it just our policy, he said, this would be true of any brokerage in the United States, that you would not be allowed to be the representative. Wait a minute. So, so hang on a second. So this is based on a record of your arrest. But That's it. I understand that there was no conviction, was there? Sure, great. No conviction. I remind him of that. But it was the nature of the arrest, uh, the fact that it had been an arrest, because he, he knew some of the facts surrounding the address. Somehow it involved the Holocaust or anti-Semitism or something. I mean, it shouldn't have, somebody should have reported it as an anti-Semitic event because I was the one who brought in two revisionist Jews to speak. But nonetheless, uh, because it had some sort of a taint, uh, you know, did they think I was a, a, a terrorist in waiting or something? I, I'm, I'm not sure. He didn't use that exact language. But some there's some bank regulation or guidance out there, or some brokerage guidance or regulation that he claims is going to prohibit me from being a representative on any kind of a brokerage account. I haven't tested it. I'm not a wealthy man. I don't have stocks of my own. I don't have a brokerage account of my own. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's true, but I, I went back and forth with the law firm for UBS and they, they just completely stonewalled me. I threatened legal action, but the church is reluctant to take legal action. And, by that time, it had been largely resolved anyway. They let my co-chairperson be the representative, and so it was worked out in that fashion. But it just it stunned me because it really did. It was, to me, a creeping Chinese social credit system that had come to America, and, and very few people know about it. Uh, I yeah, haven't been able to – I need uh, to find a, a brokerage or banking expert who can – who can track this down for me and see if it's totally on the up and up too, or whether it's just UBS. My understanding is that UBS had a big infusion of Chinese invest investment lately here too. So I don't know if that's has anything to do with it. I'm speculating now, totally speculating. Yeah. I wonder what those policies are. And I know that in terms of employment, if you were applying for a job at some place and they refuse to hire you because of an arrest record like that, that would run afoul of the uh, discrimination laws. And in fact, I actually have a friend who I helped win a um, $50,000 judgment for after this person was hired and worked a little bit and then got fired on the basis that supposedly they had not disclosed their criminal background. It's, I think the question was something like, do you have any criminal record? And this person had an arrest but no conviction and okay. so they said no i don't have a criminal record and uh then the employer discovered that there had been an arrest and said well you didn't disclose the criminal record so you're fired and oh. so i actually uh got involved quickly and called the employer and said that's discrimination you can't do that and the employer just kind of laughed at me so that pissed me off so i said <laughs> to my friend okay let's uh let's take this to court then and so Excellent. we did and ended up winning fifty thousand yeah. bucks uh but the point being 
that it's completely contrary to, as you better than anybody knows, you know, to the principle of you're innocent until proven guilty, to have this be punished this way for crimes that you were never convicted of simply because you were arrested in quite likely falsely, in your case, obviously falsely. Right. And for me, it was made clear to me that it wasn't just because I was arrested. I think I could have been a representative with an arrest, but it was the nature of the arrest. Yeah, I mean, if it, if it had been murder or, you know, rape or something like that, it wouldn't matter. But anti-Semitism, oh, my God. There, there you go. Yeah, so something that somebody in the, quote, back office in, in New York, I imagine, I don't know that for sure, you know, um, did, didn't like to see. So, yeah, that, I would have I would have really liked to litigate that, I, but uh, can't litigate everything, so. <laughs> yeah, there's an endless supply of possible cases these days, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's yeah, so so I guess the American social credit system is going to give you a lot of negative points for you know anything remotely related to anti-Semitism. Like if you if you frequent the wrong websites that are deemed anti-Semitic by the ADL, I'm going to have a pretty bad social credit score, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a, it's a concern, I and mean, I never I never thought we'd see it back in the the heyday of. Uh, the 60s and 70s, when I went to college, my friends and I used to talk about this type of thing. Oh, it'll never come to the United States, that kind of tyranny. Well, it's here. <laughs> and and so you mentioned that you think that there might be some kind of Freemasonic infiltration of the Mennonite Church that could partially explain why your fellow Mennonites have become this apparently insane. Uh, we all know about the Freemasonic infiltration of the Catholic Church, uh, and, and there, I've had guests on the show talking about this, how the Freemasons and uh, Propaganda Due Lodge in particular uh, got their hooks into the Vatican Bank. And then the CIA uh, laundered much of the world's drug money through the Vatican Bank through much of the Cold War period. The Vatican was willing to do that because they hated communism, just like the CIA did. And there's also the scandal around the, the resignation of Pope Benedict, who cited as his reason for resignation the sexual Freemasonry that he was unable to uproot, apparently. Uh, hmm. So we all know that stuff. Well, maybe yeah, yeah, that, yes, those of us who specialize in this sort of thing know that <laughs> stuff. Uh, and yeah. then uh, there are so many scandals in the Catholic Church around this Freemasonic infiltration. I could go on all night. But the Mennonite Church, uh, no, nobody's ever heard of that. So tell me about the Freemonite, the Freemasons, and the Mennonite Church. Yeah, well, I have to be very careful here because this is where people claim that I'm wearing a tin hat and I'm, I'm just uh -huh. a conspiracy theorist. But, but you know, I, I, I'm probably the only person who's ever researched this. That's the problem. I wish there were a few other intrepid researchers out there. You know, I, I don't have time with a law practice to do a lot. But here's what I know: <laughs> I know that. Um, there was a movement in the early part of last century to, uh, because people were concerned that there were an abundance of lodge members in the Mennonite church. And so that was bought, brought to a screeching halt at one point. Actually, it was done at a conference in Reedley, California, where the same group is located that I referred to earlier, <laughs> um, and coincidence or not. But uh, it was brought to a screeching halt at a conference there where it was determined that, no, we were no longer concerned. We as a church were no longer concerned about uprooting masons in the church, and we'll just be content with our little statements that say 
that we don't believe in becoming members of secret societies, but we're not actually going to do anything about it. So that was that's one thing that I know took place. The other thing that I found out in, in the course of my research, very curious. I mean, there's all kinds of curious things I found out, including the fact that there's a, a European uh, Mennonite congregation in uh, um, northern Germany. I'll think of the name here in a moment. But uh, they, they, they've long been recognized as having very prominent German Freemasons as part of that congregation. And, and there's, there's the suggestion that in the early days of Anabaptism, which preceded Mennonites, that uh, the Dutch and North Germans were heavily influenced by and or influenced themselves the uh, the, the whole movement of masonry and, and the lodge movement, if you will, which was seen as a at that point as resistance to the Catholic Church, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, there's there's that history. But the other thing that I found about about Mennonites in America is that you know the the, the college that I went to, I was amazed to find out how many of the presidents of that college traced their, they had family links to the, the same Masonic, um, uh, a family with a family who originally had had Masonic members. Let's put it that way. So it's, it's all, you know, I, I knew that there were a lot of family connections in the Manhattan church. What I didn't know was the Masonic connection of a particular family, which been, has been responsible for so many presidents. Now, this is all very circumstantial evidence. It's the kind of thing that, you know, is, you know, not enough to hang your hat on, but it does make you wonder, particularly, I mean, Mennonites and Anabaptists are unnatural for this kind of infiltration and influence because back in their own history, of course, they were meeting in secret conventicles. There's even a suggestion that at one point they were, um, in in close working relationship with some of the workers' lodges in Switzerland, um, so you know there's there's a lot of grist here if you if you want to get at it as to why they might be uh, fodder for Masons working secretly within the United States, even though it's the last place that people would think. Right. Yeah. The Freemasonry seems to you know a lot of different threads you can follow. There's the sort of um, mafia thread or whatever where where they're it's it's like mutual self-promotion in terms of careers and money and so on and and it does seem there may be a bit of a philosophical acceptance of you know exploring evil as well as good so if your brother mason ends up in court in front of you and you're the judge and he flashes you the secret hand sign you're supposed to uh, get him off you know that sort of thing uh not yeah you know, all strikes me as, as pretty unsavory which is why I think spirituality shouldn't be in secret societies. It should be in open churches who are transparent about what they teach. And right. so that, and of course, yeah. And so, the, so the secret societies now, they, they use the kind of power they can accumulate to infiltrate the churches. And and that really uh, screws things up. Um, and, yeah. and I, I'm sorry to hear this. You know, I, I, I like Mennonites. My overall impression of Mennonites is very positive. A Mennonite, farming family built the log house I live in actually really cool family and I you know we've had all kinds of religious discussions with them you know we're Muslims and uh, we found a lot in common actually um, so I'm, I'm and they, they the people I know the Mennonites I've run into really seem like the last people that would be uh, behaving in this bizarre way that you've described at that conference or you know being infiltrated by Freemasons uh, right. so I, well, it's, yeah. I should qualify this because 
the Mennonite Church USA, which is the largest denomination of Mennonites, they have been thoroughly infiltrated and corrupted and acculturated, in my view, even though my little church is still a member of them. But, you know, that's a different story. And, you know, it would take us too long to go into that. But um, they, they're the ones that I think are uncritical on these things. And they're not really the salt of the earth farmer type kind who work with their hands. These are the people who went off to the cities and are the professional types. And there were some of those in, in Europe, too. And I think that's one of the reasons that masonry crept into and started to dominate some of the aspects of the church there as well. But yeah, so it's, it's still a mixed bag, but uh, it's, it's something to be concerned about. I've yeah. And, and there's the, the issue of whether, you know, to what extent masonry is tied in with Zionism, um, with uh, Jewish power and so on. And there are there's a range of views on that. And at one extreme, the view would be, that masonry was essentially invented as a tool of a certain uh, very powerful element of organized Jewry to wield against Christians primarily. And so from the get-go, it, you know, we, we do know that, of course, masonry is anti-Christian, anti-organized religion, but mainly focusing on Christians and now to some extent Muslims as well. But whether that's being done on behalf of Jews or not is another question. And one group of people think that's the case. And and there certainly are some interesting parallels between Masonry and the kind of Messianic millenarian Judaism that has metastasized into Zionism, because both the Masons and the Zionists dream of tearing down the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the Islamic world's oldest and greatest architectural monument, and then putting up a blood sacrifice temple so that the uh, so-called Messiah, and that Messiah would, of course, be the Antichrist, uh, because Jesus is the real Messiah for Christians and Muslims, but for that, for this other group, it, they're waiting for a different Messiah who would be the military champion of the Jewish people who would essentially conquer and enslave the Goyim. And so that Messiah will rule the world from a blood sacrifice temple in Jerusalem. And so that's one kind of radical version of, of Jewish millenarian messianic thought that has, is part of Zionism. And the Masons also seem to be obsessed with Solomon's temple and rebuilding Solomon's temple. Uh, and is that a coincidence that they both have that kind of weird messianic fixation um, or is it linked? Uh, is that something you've ever thought about? Um, I not 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 in such specific terms, but I, I am aware that the, the I think I believe Hitler persecuted supposedly at least some of the Masons along with the Jews in in Germany and saw them as as the you know birds of a feather if you will, and I, I'm aware that in I think in the in the Dutch circles it may be that I, some of the members of the secret society or the the illuminated, if you will, were among those who were most influential in making sure that Jews made their way back into society as accepted members of society. Now, you know, which which came first, the chicken or the egg is a different issue. But, uh, you know, there's the suggestion that behind behind Judaic power, if you will, that there is this other power, which I sometimes wonder dates back to the Dutch Golden Age, and the tremendous wealth that was present there, which keeps itself very much under wraps. You know, you, the Dutch East India Company would be an example, and then the British East India Company, which, you know, some people think that the CIA traces their origins to that. 
So now we're really going off far afield here into the realm of what people would, you know, definitely like to brand me as as, as a conspiracy theorist. You know, so these this is conjecture, but it's uh, it's fascinating conjecture. Absolutely. And of course, if, if you're not being called a conspiracy theorist, you're either not paying attention or you're not uh, voicing your suspicions. Uh, right. So, um, uh, well, I do, we, I, do yeah. I do try to I do try to keep the two separate at least, and, and I'm not saying that you you don't either, because as a lawyer, you know, I have to concentrate on what I know for the purposes of court cases, as opposed to what I believe to be the case. And so, anyway, that's what I think I did in, in, in the Kansas court, but somebody else thought I didn't. Yeah. Well, hopefully at the appeals level, maybe it'll, it'll get straightened out. You never know. Although there's certain, there sure is a, a kind of a reflex in these kinds of cases is just like you noticed with your experience with the new social credit system that, you know, when anything remotely come, you know, anti-Semitic or conspiracy theory or whatever happens to come up or Holocaust related, then it seems like these official organs of power just reflexively go against the person who's being right. stigmatized. Uh, right. you, you had that happen with your defense of Ellen Mariani. And uh, yeah. you know, if people pull up that New York Times article about that case, what they'll find is, is a description that grossly misrepresents what happened at that trial and uh, kind of goes along with the extremely corrupt Zionist judge Hellerstein, who apparently had the job of keeping the lid on 9-11 by making sure that no litigation ever got anywhere. And so you're, you ran into him when you were trying to defend Ellen Mariani, who lost her husband on one of the flights on 9-11. And he sanctioned you for supposed anti-Semitism because, as I recall, you were not, you thought he should recuse himself because his family is all tied in with Israel, which is one of the suspects, uh, in, in 9-11. And, and so that became, you know, oh, uh, the, the lawyer for Ellen Mariani is, is, uh, slandering the poor judge with this, these anti-Semitic insinuations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and as again, you know, when, when something like this comes up, the power elite and their institutions just kind of reflexively slap down the person that's being stigmatized. Yeah, he was he was definitely doing his job. That was definitely a a case where he, uh, I mean, doing doing his real job, not the job that a federal judge is supposed to do, is what I'm saying. So uh, that was definitely one of one of the cases that I ran to were ran into where he was not abiding by law so much as his loyalties. Yeah, yeah, that's so. I think you know maybe you'll get lucky and find an honest judge. Uh, did, did you? kind of look into the venue first because i've heard from people like william pepper who is a fairly successful lawyer who actually had the supreme success of getting that jury verdict that the u.s government killed martin luther king uh, and and he said that you know we're talking about 9-11 stuff and and i know you're you're involved with the 9-11 lawyers group now too and and bill pepper was kind of skeptical about getting anywhere with 9-11 because he looked at the various possibilities for venues and didn't really see a good venue where you'd likely get an honest judge. <laughs> uh, so I'm wondering if, if you have any sense whatsoever about, you know, your chances here of getting a judge who would actually give you a fair hearing. Yeah. I, I think in, in general, the federal courts of appeal are a wasteland, unfortunately. So I think that's true of all the federal courts of appeal. You don't get appointed to that level unless you're subservient to uh, the interests that want to control those for 
for the the interests of a few, if you will. That's my cynical view at this point, and and probably only a little less so at the federal district court level where you have judges who actually try cases. I mean, the federal judiciary is uh, is not a very reliable institution at this point. But nonetheless, there are certain cases where it's very hard for them to prevaricate. I'm not sure that this is one of them because the gatekeepers have made it so hard for, you know, and, and this is part of my case, my case against the city, for instance, they've said, well, you can't sue the police there because you would have to basically prove that there was a pattern in practice for what they did, or you would have to, you would have to plausibly allege it in your complaint. And so you've got a couple of bad Supreme Court cases from 10 years or so ago, which raised the standards of what it is to plausibly complain to such a degree. And then there's different standards when you sue a municipality as well, to such, a, such an extent that it's very hard to, to I mean, it, it becomes a subjective standard instead of what used to be the objective standard. The standard used to be, if you plead facts that could result in a judgment in your favor, then you get into court. You get an opportunity to go into court. Now it's, you've got to plead something that is can plausibly result in a judgment. Well, that's, that's open to opinion, isn't it? So, you know, when, when I heard somebody, you know, comment the other day in the context of the, the election fraud um, allegations, say that there was never um, the, the kind of substantiation necessary for litigation, you know, in any of those cases, that rang similar alarm bells, because when you talk about substantiation, that's only a little bit different from talking about plausibility. You don't start with substantiation. You, you end, that's why you litigate, so that you can, you can develop evidence. All you start with is a theory that is cognizable, this is the way it should be at least, that, that if you prevail on your facts, if you're able to prove them, then you win. And so I know for a fact that there were, there were, there were things that never made it into court because the judges, I'm sure, worked with this very high gatekeeping standard where you say, well, I mean, and then it becomes a, a, the people with the, the most, if you will, far-fetched theories, even if they might be true, are automatically at a disadvantage because if it's never happened again, well, is it plausible? I mean, it's never happened previously. Is it plausible that it would happen? Well, a lot of federal judges are going to feel totally justified in saying, no, it's not plausible because that's not the way we have, that's not the way things work here in the United States. Our voting machines are totally secure. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's yeah. That, that, again, that does sound kind of like what happened with, with Jim Fetzer where they, uh, they just give a summary judgment because they uh, are really unwilling to even go through the legal process in considering the facts being alleged by one right. side in the case. Right. In other words, they're not willing to hear both sides. You know, I'm actually, I'm reading a novel right now that is, is one of the great, you know, great artistic uh, renditions of a legal system. That's Bleak House by Dickens. And the nightmarish picture of the chancery court that Dickens draws in, in that novel is uh, largely about how this this court is just a money making machine, and once you get into that machine, it just uh, it you never get out. You know it, these cases go on for generations, and the people and families involved you know lose vast amounts of money, 
and it all turns into legal jargon that nobody, including even the lawyers, can make head or tails of, and they completely lose track of what the real issue was and what simple justice would be. And it seems that the sort of thing you're describing, in a way, it's it's almost the opposite in that, you know, rather than having stuff get sucked into the system and having, you know, so much stuff in the system that everything gets postponed forever and nothing ever comes out, they're not letting stuff even get into the system in the first place if, if they don't want it. Uh, yeah. and, and so that, that's sort of the opposite. But either way, you get justice denied. You know, what, what you want is, is right, quick, consistent justice where people with uh, an allegation of facts that you know, fits a legitimate complaint get a chance to, to air them out. And uh, so what, it, the, what you're describing is, is that that's becoming less common. And I suppose the, their excuse would partly be resources, you know, just as they force people to plead down. You know, if you get arrested for anything in the U.S., basically you just better, you know, go listen to your attorney and they're going to charge, you know, you, you spit on the sidewalk, they charge you with murder one, you know, they, they then they knock it down to manslaughter. And then, you know, you plead guilty to disturbing the peace or something like that is the way it always works. And if you're dumb enough to say, but I never spit on the sidewalk in the first place, I'm going to plead innocent. Uh, you end up like getting hanged for murder one. Well, I'm exaggerating slightly, but that process of, you know, overcharging and forcing people, yeah. you know, that's that's how it works. And so you, you never get your day in court. Almost nobody ever gets their day in court. And uh, so what you're describing is, is that, you know, rather than Dickens case where anybody who's dumb enough to try to get their day in court, just gets sucked in and, and they'll never get out. In this case, nobody even ever gets their day in court at all. <laughs> so right. what are we paying our tax dollars for in the first place? Yeah. And I think what you're describing here, and I want to give a shout out to the January 6th defendants, because I think that's part of what they're facing. I don't know the politics of your show or the politics that you have on that issue, but I, I have an open mind, that, I, total open mind. I'm not committed to either, yeah. you know, either side on that. Yeah. So my, my view of that is that a lot of them are so intimidated or they're, they're, they're going to be facing such intimidation as to the prospects of such draconian sentences precisely along the lines you've just described that they will be convinced to plead to something that they really didn't do. I mean, some, some of them may have, but, you know, I, I think that there, there may have been a lot of people there um, who, uh, who, I mean, certainly they were not, they were not trying to cause an insurrection. I don't believe. So, you know, maybe a few people were trying to, cause trouble but an insurrection without guns that seems like a play yeah they, well they've obviously grossly exaggerated in order to create a public myth uh yeah. as philip zelica would call it uh okay. and in which everybody's being tarred with the same brush if you were in dc you know to attend that rally you know or protest mm -hmm. the election or anything like that you were part of an insurrection you were part of this massive conspiracy to end democracy in the united states and right. so and that's obviously completely ridiculous. Now, whether there were people, quote unquote, conspiring to try to pressure Pence, for example, to throw the election into the House and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, I think there were. But somehow I, I think about 99 percent of the people were there just to demonstrate because they thought the election was stolen, whether they're right or not. I don't know. But why shouldn't people be able to demonstrate? And it sure looked like there was some monkey business in, in causing it to get into the Capitol and, and cause that damage and, and turn into the, I mean, somebody, I think it was a coup and a counter coup that, you know, the, the Trump people were trying to use uh, their, you know, whatever they could do to try to stay in power. And I think the other side was trying to do anything it could to get Trump out of power. And the coup versus counter coup scenario led to that incident. But, 
I think I think the the anti-Trump side very likely had provocateurs and uh, made sure that things got out of hand. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. And I, you probably heard the news that Simone Gold, American, I think it's America's Frontline Doctors, just got sentenced to 60 days for her participation in the January 6th event. So, um, right. And, and as I understand it, all she did was was go in through a door that the cops had opened. Exactly. Uh, to, yeah, she had no idea that it, that there was a that it was even a violent breach. She just went into the Capitol because people were going in there, and she gave some kind of little speech, and then she walked yeah. out. Yeah, the kind of the speech that she thought she'd be able to deliver as part of the rally. So this was her <laughs> opportunity. So yeah, it's a you know, it's a it's a strange world we live in, um, but yeah, and and, and a somber world too. Um, yeah, it. yeah, it is, and. You know, and one interpretation of why we're losing our freedom in all of these different ways is that it's it's the war, right? It's it's uh, it's the I think I published an article on this headline, something like it's it's uh, it's it's the war preparation, stupid, the war mobilization, the war mobilization, stupid, you know, playing on Clinton's is the economy, stupid. Only what's happening right now is like the Democrats, obviously, are they, you know, Biden is at his lowest point yet. If the election were held today, you know, Trump would would beat Biden. And according to the latest poll, uh, the Democrats are in serious trouble. So their only hope is a war fever, right? When people are in a war fever, they just, you know, they, they support the commander in chief, like, you know, Bush after 9-11 or FDR after Pearl Harbor. And so the Democrats looks like their only hope is some kind of a new, new Pearl Harbor, right? And they're, they're ramping up the war, war frenzy, you know, and, and in, in wartime, there are no more freedoms. You're, you know, you sympathize with the enemy or get out of line, you get locked up and you get shut down. And I think they're kind of boiling the frog, getting ready for wartime. Does that make sense? Americans, to you? Yeah. Very concerned about what's coming. Um, it seems like it's been bad. I'm afraid it could be even worse. So, yeah. 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 It's uh, it is looking kind of, kind of grim. Um, we can still uh, have these conversations, which is, uh, is something anyway. Uh, right. Yeah. And yeah, they, they try to make sure that we don't reach too many people, but uh, I haven't had my door kicked in yet for doing the radio show. Um, yeah. And I joke about drones outside my window, but I haven't seen any coming for me yet. Knock yeah. on proverbial well, I, wood. Yeah. I, I, def, I definitely feel canceled when I tried to get the word out about something like, like this. I mean, you know, because I think if more people were aware of what had happened to me, even in my own church, there would be some more concern. But, you know, as long as people are kept ignorant, um, then that serves the purpose of, uh, you know, status quo. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we need a way to reach more people. And, you know, in your church, it, it's it's kind of disheartening in a way. You know, I've seen your experience. I've seen what happened to David Ray Griffin with the Presbyterians when they published his book and then kind of quasi-unpublished it. And, you know, what's happened to, well, let's see, Davidson Lore was, you know, he lost his Unitarian church. And uh, oh, what's his name? Rich Rich in Seattle lost his church. And uh, John Shuck lost his church. Uh, the late, great John Shuck, by the way, a good friend and colleague who passed away mm-hmm. last year and died of COVID. And uh, yes, I think COVID actually is real. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's these churches um, are not really uh, places for God's truth anymore, are they? They, they certainly aren't. Yeah. In fact, uh, ironically, I've, I've had a couple of Muslim clients lately who uh, I thought were 
more Christian than my than my, my own church. <laughs> so, oh, I, I uh, actually I actually appreciate Jesus now that I came to Islam. That's how I. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people haven't heard that that uh, that Muslims revere Jesus and are waiting for him to come back as the Messiah, just like the Christians are. Uh, somebody doesn't want you to know that if you're Christian, I guess. But I, I guess not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hear the music, and I, I don't think it's the theme song from the apocalypse yet, so maybe we'll be back next week, same time, same channel. And tell it. Thank you. Bruce Lighty, always great to talk with you. Thank you, Kevin. My question. Okay, take care. That's Bruce Lighty, Kevin Barrett here on Truth Jihad Radio. The website is truthjihad.com. Should be back up soon, God willing. Yeah.